0: All right well hello everyone and welcome to human-centered security today i have with me chloe poynton she is the founder of article one advisors and one of the things that really drew me to chloe was this idea of responsible innovation something that a program that her company has come up with and i said chloe what what is that? That sounds really awesome, really interesting. So hopefully she'll talk a little bit more about that. But Chloe, to start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and Article 1 Advisors.
1: Wonderful. Well, Heidi, it's such a pleasure to be um, on this podcast with you and, and so fun to have a chance to talk through ways to think about making technology more responsible. Um, but I co founded article 1 in 2015 with the desire to really elevate human rights considerations within companies. And over the last 6 years, we've worked in a range of sectors and a range of geographies to really drive transformative change that places people at the center of business. And while we started with a focus on human rights, um, we really built a uh, recognition that we needed to get closer and closer to the product within the technology sector in order to really mitigate the risks that we were starting to see and starting to address from a policy perspective in the human rights realm. And so we started a uh, responsible innovation program about two years ago that was really a natural extension of our human rights work with the goal of Uh, speaking directly with engineers and project managers, product managers to really um, surface risks during the product development lifecycle rather than after a product was shipped so that we could, in an ideal world, actually deal with any potential risk to people before they became real-world
0: impacts. Yeah, I love what you said about getting closer to the product. I feel a lot of similarities between some of the work that I'm trying to do in UX and security. Mm-hmm. Really, like you said, you have to get you have to get closer to the end product and talk to those product managers, talk to the engineers, talk to the designers, and in order to make any sort of meaningful impact.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, and and it's a different skill set
1: than um, talking to policy folks or regulators. It's Uh, engineers tend to have a specific mindset and figuring out how to connect with them in the right ways that make this work feel meaningful to them, important for them and essential to their work is what we, we, we really try to do.
0: Yeah, that and that's super interesting as well. And I think, you know, as you tell us a little bit more about responsible innovation and some of the other work that article 1 has done, I would love for you to. Hone in on that. You know, how can we have more effective conversations with you know the engineering team, with the product team? I think that will be very helpful to listeners and very interesting to listeners. So, so what? Talk talk a little bit more about what the responsible innovation programs are. um, Is are? I'm not exactly sure how to how to frame that, but um, you know, and and what companies uh, have 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 championed this approach.
1: Yeah, so responsible innovation is a, a relatively new field. Um, and we've seen programs emerge in the last few years as technology companies have come under increasing pressure to address the real world harms related to their products, right? There's no uh, lack of New York Times uh, headlines these days around ways that technology project products have had unintended consequences or, or negative impacts on people. And so, In the last few years, you've seen Salesforce, for example, create its office for ethical and humane use of technology. You've seen Microsoft create its ethics and society program. Facebook, Cisco, and Google, among others, have also stood up RI programs. And what responsible innovation is, is a a more um, unique and tailored form of due diligence that really seeks to be proactive um, during the product development lifecycle in anticipating risks before they become real world harms or or realities. And so responsible innovation seeks to take a lot of the lessons from more traditional human rights due diligence programs, ethical frameworks, and uh, kind of tailor them to the product development process in order to help teams anticipate risks and then develop strategies to mitigate those those risks as part of the design process rather than in reaction to harms that occur after the product is shipped.
0: And where does that live within an organization?
1: Yeah, great question. So, um It really depends on the company. And and one of the things we always try to do in our work with our clients is um, make sure that we are able to build on what's already there, rather than completely reinvent the wheel. Um, Because at the end of the day, you can have the best uh, theoretical program, but if it isn't embedded in the company, it's not going to be effective. So, in some cases, you're seeing uh, responsible innovation uh, be developed as part of a policy team. Um, that has been thinking about harms once a product is out in the real world and have that team start to migrate closer and closer to the product itself. Um, in other cases, you actually have responsible innovation, um, reporting up to the chief product officer and it's actually built into the product, um, unit within the, within the company. And so, uh, it's, it's still such an early field and I don't want to say that there's one right place to house this, but I would say. Um, In general, the closer you are to the product, the better uh, able you are to actually implement change.
0: Yeah. And I think in our initial conversation, we talked a little bit about frameworks, but what frameworks are part of these responsible innovation programs? Obviously, they, like you said, you're, you're trying to build off something and not reinvent the wheel. So what's your suggestion for that? Exactly. And this, again, depends very much on on the company, but at
1: Article One, we always recommend grounding due diligence programs, including responsible innovation programs in international standards. And um, we believe that the human rights framework is incredibly helpful um, to inform potential harms and solutions to mitigate those harms. And I think there's three key reasons um, why the human rights framework provides really important benefits to companies who are thinking about these issues. The first is that human rights encompasses the universe of potential harms, right? So even though cutting edge technology can negatively impact users and society in new ways, the harms that are caused by these technologies are not new, right? So um, AI can affect privacy in new ways, but the fundamental right to privacy is already enshrined. And so um, that baseline is, is already there. The second reason is that the human rights are globally accepted, and, and this is incredibly important um, because there's very few things in the world that are, are widely agreed upon. Um, and the human rights framework, it's holistic, detailed, predictable, um, and it accounts for all aspects of, of well-being. And unlike ethics, which can be subjective and um, potentially undefined, human rights standards are uh, or frameworks are standardized and Clearly outlined in international um, instruments, and so that allows companies to use a shared language to facilitate understanding within their company um, with others within their sector with the broader human or business community and then also with governments. Right? So, in the technology space, a lot of times. One of the key vectors for risk is government use of the technology in ways that it wasn't intended for. And so, um, grounding the work you're doing in human rights is also a flag to states. And that's the third piece, right? Which is that there is a state duty to protect and by grounding your responsible innovation work in human rights, you're able to um, continually reinforce the importance of states and governments using technologies in the right ways. And on this last point, the former High Commissioner for Human Rights um, used the example of flight. And I, I want to quote uh, a, uh, an article that he wrote in, I believe it was the Washington Post, where he was talking about how when flight was first invented, it allowed people to travel to foreign and distant places, bringing the world closer together. But when World War II broke out, flight suddenly became the reason the atomic bomb was able to be dropped, right? So the same technology in different times resulted in massively different outcomes. And he wrote that when the global order is improving, when there's peace and prosperity, liberal democracies are expanding, repression is withering away, and human rights are being honored, chances are technology will generally be put to good use. If the situation is the opposite, when liberal democracies are engulfed by war, technology will become a partner of bad intentions. And so I think this is an important um, aspect to put responsible innovation in the larger context, because even if a company is doing everything right internally, but releasing their products to a world that isn't considering human rights and isn't um, seeking to ensure that the technologies have positive impacts and not negative impacts, Uh, a company who's developing these technologies is not going to fully be able to control the way it's used. And so continually reinforcing the need for human rights norms allows um, a company to to push for an environment or an ecosystem where the technology is more likely to be used for good.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. If people want to learn more about this framework, where would you suggest they start?
1: Yeah, so there's a um, set of Principles that the UN released in 2011 called the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and that's the framework that guides the expectation for all companies, not just technology companies. But all companies to consider the ways in which their operations, their products, their services can impact people positively or negatively, and then integrate the findings of any surfacing exercise in order to. Um, put in place policies, processes, management practices to really mitigate those risks. So that's the framework in terms of the process expectations, but the actual rights themselves are enshrined in um, what's called the international bill of rights, which includes the universal declaration of human rights. um, which outlines the fundamental rights that are um, in place for everyone, just by virtue of them being born of being human beings on this planet. Um, And that's just a really useful framework uh, that we use every day in our work here at Article 1 with our clients as a stress test to say, okay, here's the list of rights. And how can this product, as it is structured today, potentially impact these positively or negatively? And how could that change as new features or new functions are added or new users are adopting it or new markets are being offered it? Um, And that provides a way to really ensure kind of alignment in terms of the issues that you're looking at, regardless of how uh, disparate the technology may be.
0: That's super helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Can you start to dive a little bit deeper into the, like a product level set of principles?
1: Yeah, so oftentimes we'll see companies take the um, human rights framework or the values that they have as a company and establish kind of corporate level principles that speak to a north star for product teams. So um, Google, for example, released their AI principles that commit the company to be socially beneficial, avoid creating or reinforcing unfair bias, being accountable to people, among many others. But we're increasingly seeing companies recognizing that they need to take those kind of very high level intention setting principles and translate them into product level principles that can actually inform decision making in a meaningful way. So, one example here is um, a, a project we worked with Facebook dating on to develop a set of product principles to ensure that the dating product was one that was inclusive and respectful of all daters. And to create these principles, we brought together um, product designers and um, XFN leaders from policy and legal and comms um, design to do a two part workshop that really um, helped the team align on what were the inclusion risks or challenges in the dating app industry. And how could we develop principles that spoke to those risks and helped. The team inform development decisions with a lens to mitigating those risks. And so we were able to create kind of a straw man version of these and then test them stress test them, um, uh, socialize them and refine them to make sure that as different uh, stages, of the product development lifecycle were reached. We could go back to these principles again and again, and have that inform the next set of decisions in order to really create a product that was inclusive that um, felt safe to a diversity of users. And that really um, met the, the team's overarching goal of being a, a space that allowed all types of daters to feel welcome.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit when you say stress test, like what a, what exactly does that mean?
1: So, 1 of the things that I often find so interesting about the technology space is solutions that seem obvious on face value when you start to unpack them can really result in unintended consequences that could actually make the situation worse. And so what we always do with our work is take those original assumptions and unpack them, stress test them, put them in a bunch of different scenarios and see how the um, the guidance that that principle suggests would play out in those different scenarios and ensure that they would actually reach the, reach the ultimate objective and not worsen the situation in any way.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And again, it has lots of parallels with security, you know, the security controls that you try to put in place, like, you putting them in place because you're trying to make things better Mm -hmm. but then you realize oh that actually just made people circumvent the control in a different way and um, gives you a whole host of other issues I'm wondering how this plays out is this something that is kind of workshopped with the product and engineering teams that you know that you're kind of playing out uh, these different scenarios and it's kind of like a what if you know sort of thing and like modeling these types of things i'm, I'm just curious like how how this is actually done because it's it's so interesting but it also sounds really challenging
1: <laughs> yeah and there's a couple of different ways that that we do this and i think this goes back to the initial uh, part of our conversation around how do you actually have these conversations Mm -hmm. with engineering and product teams and um, we at article 1 kind of have a range of different tools that we deploy to engage uh, different teams, depending on where they are. And uh, in the 1st instance, or the most basic level, One of the things we seek to accomplish is empower teams to think about these risks, right? This may be a 1 time workshop, or they may be developing a project product for 6 months and then moving to another 1. But we want to give them a new um, framework or a new set of tools that they can carry forward in their day to day work, whether it's on this product or another 1 down the line, or if they move companies. Um, so that they can continually be someone who thinks about responsibility and thinks about the ways that their products um, could cause harm. Um, because there's, I have yet to meet an engineer who um, isn't committed to having their products be a force for good in the world. It's just they don't necessarily always have the right tools. So one thing we do is what we call responsible foresight workshops, and these workshops use scenarios or they use personas to take teams out of their regular workday and really envision the people who may use or may be impacted by the product they're developing even if those people are not the intended users and that's what I think is so important because oftentimes we've got UX teams who really bring to life the people that are intended to use the product and so the engineering teams that we're engaging with they know those personas or they know those those kind of categories of people really well but they don't necessarily think about the people who might be on the fringe who aren't necessarily going to um, be the first user or um, may not be someone that the, the, the product team even wants to use the, the product. So, for example, there's a lot of technology products out there that aren't for um, individuals under the age of 13. But we know people under the age of 13 use these products and so forcing the team to engage with that reality. Um, or engage with the reality that there's going to be some people that are more vulnerable than others or people that are going to intentionally misuse the product bad actors who are going to, um, try and, uh, find any avenue they can to, um, act in nefarious ways. And that that your product may be 1 of the, the tools that they see to be able to do that. And so using scenarios and using personas, we have product teams really step into the shoes of different people and think from their perspective. How could they be harmed? Um, How could the product be used by them in ways that could be harmful? And these uh, workshops can be really helpful for product teams. And we've seen some pretty amazing outcomes, um, given that it's a pretty light lift, right? just a, a few hours of the team's time. Um, We've seen entire uh, objectives or strategy North stars for product teams change um, over a 3 hour period of time because they realize that they've been thinking about harms in the wrong way or too narrow of a way and the need to up level or to expand um, the issues that they've been considering. That said, there are gonna be times where a three hour workshop may not be sufficient, right? So if we think about cases where there are really deep risks or known risks from the beginning, um, there's gonna be the need to do deep dive assessments. And in those cases, we'll work with the company to really marry our expertise in, in harm framework, responsible innovation, human rights with their expertise in their product. And so one good example of this is a product uh, Deep dive that we did with Cisco on one of their multi-factor authentication security products Um, and in this case, we partnered closely with the product team to understand the potential intended and unintended use cases of the product. And we did this by breaking down the product into its known components so that we didn't kind of have to start from scratch. So it had a piece on facial recognition and we started to take that apart and anticipate and set the groundwork for facial recognition risks that were already known that we could build on. And then we tried to pinpoint, okay, what's new in the product or what's unique? Is it a combination of existing technologies that we can isolate and understand what each of those existing technology risk profiles look like? Or is it something new altogether? And how do we assess that? And so we spent a couple of months with the team really thinking through and future proofing our approach to say what could go wrong with this product so that we could then develop really tailored guidance around what those risks look like and then partner very closely because we're not engineers with the engineering team to say, this is the risk that we see. Tell us engineers how you can solve for that risk now and what would that look like and what resourcing do you need to actually ensure that you have what what is required in order to mitigate that risk before the product is launched. And so the, the kind of approach we take goes from that, that light lift of let's get you in the shoes of people who could be using your product or impacted by your product in harmful ways, um, all the way to let's partner with a few months and do a really deep dive on what your product is and what the potential human rights or um, broader societal issues related to the product could be so that we can help mitigate those um, now rather than uh, kind of play catch up once the product is released.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's super interesting that this was around two-factor authentication, which obviously has a huge relationship security. you know, in yeah. security.
1: Absolutely, no. And that's one of the things that, uh, on the security front in particular, there's so off, so many times the security issues compete with other uh, human rights issues, right? So um, safety and security versus privacy, and how do you play those out? And you get into some really interesting conversations about how to balance rights and how to balance um, levels of risk in order to get to the, the the best outcome, ultimately.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit.
1: Yeah, and this is actually one of the cases where um, the broader ethical framework can be incredibly helpful. And so, while we really love to ground our work in human rights, we recognize there are going to be cases where bringing additional frameworks in can be really helpful. And, and the kind of trade off conversation is 1 of those places where ethical frameworks have been really useful and there it's really around teasing out um, as much as possible. What each avenue looks like in its most um, aggressive form, right? So, if we took privacy to its ultimate level, what would that end place look like? And if we took security to its ultimate level, what place, end place would that look like? And then, how do we start to scale back to find a balance or an equilibrium that feels as protective of both sides as possible? Um, and is that technically possible? And if it's not, Um, what can be done and if it is, how do we communicate that to users so that they're aware of the limitations on their privacy and why we believe the security aspects of that are are worth it. Um, but at the end of the day, making sure that there's the appropriate level of transparency so people can choose to engage with the product or not.
0: I love that you said. Transparency and communicating, effectively communicating mm-hmm. with the end user so that they can make a conscious and educated choice. Exactly. I think that's, that's so important. And the <laughs> other thing that I, I sort of heard you talking about that, that made me think of a conversation that I had with a UX expert, his name is Jared Spool. He's on episode 20 and he was talking about how UX people you know, we think about accessibility and, you know, making sure that things are as accessible and as user-friendly as possible, but security is one of those, like, conundrums that
1: mm-hmm. is
0: selective usability, right? We only want the right people to have access exactly. to that, and we want to keep out everyone else. So, it's actually, it's a pretty challenging design problem. Mm-hmm.
1: It absolutely is, and um, figuring out kind of who are the trusted voices that you could bring into the room to, to ensure that there's appropriate accountability for a company who may be making these unilateral decisions that have real societal impacts. And how do you, we um, maintain the security in a way that prevents bad actors from um, being able to circumvent them? But also ensuring that there's the right kinds of controls and understanding. Um, to hold companies accountable in ways that are um, are meaningful um, but still secure.
0: And to go off of what you were you started to talk about in terms of communicating with the end user and then also talking about accountability, let's segue to something that maybe our listeners are thinking. What happens when the business model conflicts with what this framework is trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, this is such an interesting and important question and something that I think we've seen increasing focus over recent years. Though I will say this has been a question that, um. Has plagued a number of sectors, not just the technology sector. So when we think, for example, about fast fashion, that's long been tied to labor risks across the apparel and footwear supply chain and that's a core business model challenge. Um, but when it comes to the tech sector, the UN has actually recently established some guidance as part of its deep, it's called B tech program. Um, and that program was established really out of this recognition that some tech business models may be creating or exacerbating negative impacts on a range of human rights. And so, for example, we can think about social media companies that may manufacture virality. Um, that may promote content that contributes to online or offline harms, or we think about the short term rental platforms leading to escalated rental pricing and reduced housing that disproportionately impacts, um, low income residents or gig economy companies relying on workers, um, without basic labor rights protections. So, kind of across the, the technology sector, we're seeing this question of the business model and its fundamental impact on people playing out. Um, but B-tech is kind of clear in its guidance that just because the business model or strategy carries inherent risk, that doesn't necessarily mean that a company can't operate um, with respect for human rights. And so the BTEC provides some guidance for companies um, who have business models that are challenging from a human rights perspective. And what they call on companies to do is um, five key things. First is to review performance incentives, that reward action that prevents or mitigate risk. So make sure that that's baked into the incentive structure and that uh, workers aren't just incentivized to maximize profit. The second is to stress test and where necessary improve the design of technologies in ways that minimize the risks of severe human rights harms. And that's really where this responsible innovation program lies. This is the second point. The 3rd is to scrutinize plans for testing and expansion into new markets. We do this a lot in our human rights, um, uh, pillar with an article 1, where we'll work with a company who may be entering a market that presents significant human rights risks. And thinking through, okay, what does the risk to, uh, rights holders in those countries look like. The 4th is engaging in collection action, collective action with peers, industry, associations, civil society, government. To really create an ecosystem where technology can be used for good um, to the point that the high commissioner uh, quote that I I raised earlier mentioned, and then finally, ensuring that companies play a constructive role in developing that ecosystem um, to increase human rights protections. And this is where I think. Uh, The question around lobbying and broader public policy advocacy is really important. And so making sure that companies are not undermining regulatory processes that uh, seek to provide greater accountability and limitations that are fundamental to to respecting human rights.
0: And you probably said this at the beginning when, so I apologize if I missed this, but can you, can you uh, define what BTEC is?
1: Yeah, so BTEC, I actually don't know what it stands for. I think it's Business Technology Program, oh, okay. but it's a it's a UN um, effort that's led out of the UN Office for Human Rights, OHCHR, that's specifically um, tasked with understanding what are the risks of human rights related to technology? What are the management systems that technology companies should be using? And how can the UN and others try and move the industry towards a more rights respecting um, way of designing and deploying their technology?
0: You know, when I started my career as a UX person, we were just, all this, uh, there, it was a lot of like new technology, the iPhone and the iPad had just come out. For example, it shows you how old I am. (laughs) And and we were, you know, admittedly, we were just building things as quickly as we could and getting them out the door and just kind of like flying by the seat of our pants. And sometimes I took a step back and I thought maybe, maybe there's a Better way. First of all, I was really concerned about the user experience because like we weren't doing our due diligence around that. But then as I started to see some of these products come into fruition and see how how widespread adoption of them. Because like at first I thought Facebook, like who's ever gonna use that? But (laughs) like wow. Billions (laughs) of (laughs) people, it turns (laughs) out. (laughs) Which is clearly like why I would be a terrible investor. (laughs) <laughs> but my point is it, it's easy to just get in the in the mindset of like just trying to quickly build things and you're so excited and you're really invested in the project but what you're saying is you really need to bake these principles in yeah otherwise they're not going to be effective you can't just just like with security you can't just tack this on at the end and say well we thought about it so we're good. Ship it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And
1: what's so fascinating to me in talking to engineers and product teams is how many people think about this regularly, but lack the framework or lack the mm-hmm. guidance to actually do the work. And so oftentimes you'll hear uh, I'll hear an engineer say to me, oh, my gosh, thank you for sharing that this framework exists because I've been shooting from my hip. And I don't know, I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a human rights expert. I'm an engineer. And so I know how to do engineering things, but I don't know how to make sure that I'm considering the ways in which vulnerable groups in India, for example, may be harmed because of the technology that I'm developing here in Silicon Valley. And so the vast, vast majority of the time, when you speak with engineers, they're just so thankful to have a system to have a framework that. Can inform their development because without it, they are understandably very lost and um, and have many blind spots that can result unfortunately in in real harm
0: yeah you you said it a lot more eloquently than I could, but yes, yeah, so that's what I was getting to is I think a lot of people are are thinking about this and, and they're genuinely worried and thinking about, wow, like the things I put out there have Wide-reaching implications, and and as you said, having some sort of framework, like something to just can, like help me make sense of this. Exactly, um, I, I can imagine that there are a lot of people who are who are very grateful that 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 exists. Yeah. So to move on to um a different sort, you know, uh, related topic, the I want to talk about regulations a little bit, and and what. What changes you're seeing or what impact regulations have on this topic?
1: Yeah, well, actually, a very related question to the the business model question. There was a quote this week from Alexander Gies, who's a German representative um, for the EU and a top negotiator when it comes to regulating uh, the technology sector, who's called for the whole system and business model of social media uh, to be regulated. And, uh, and so you're, in, you're seeing a real divergence between the EU and the US when it comes to regulating technology. The EU and UK are finalizing their approach, um, so you're seeing a lot of work around what would it mean to regulate Facebook and Google and Twitter and other technology companies, and while the text isn't complete, Um, What we're hearing is that there will likely um, be quite a bit of attention on having these companies provide transparency on key algorithms and really face much deeper oversight from from European regulators. In the US, on the other hand, I would say lawmakers have tended to favor market-based approaches um, rather than government regulation, but the... The kind of movement away from perhaps the Obama era years, where the administration's perspective on innovation was let a thousand flowers bloom, you are starting to see much more agreement, even between the left and the right, on the need to regulate the technology sector. And, and you're even hearing companies calling for it, right? You hear companies calling for uh, greater regulation, including updating Section 230, um, which, which has a lot of relevance for social media companies. Yeah. <laughs> So while little's been done here in the US, I think we're going to learn a lot of lessons from what's happening in Europe. And there's definitely an inflection point um, around uh, regulation, and we need to ensure that it is smart and it doesn't have the unintended consequences that we just discussed in terms of principles development, right? So there can be regulation that on face value seems like the right approach, but when you actually play it out, it could result in perverse incentives or unintended consequences. And so making sure that, that kind of all players are at the table, it's government, it's civil society, it's rights holders, it's technology companies, really coming together to think through what can um, the regulatory environment look like and what should it look like to really allow for innovation um, that mitigates negative impacts on people.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen, you've seen a lot of coverage on this recently in the U.S. I know we're do not doing as much to act as the eu but i think and i'd be curious to hear what your perspective on it is but it seems to me that at least think it seems like people are more aware and are talking about it you know are concerned yeah
1: i think that's right and um i think that concern is only going to grow um and the pressure to to regulate is going to increase right so whether it's Uh, Breaking up big tech is one of the the key uh, uh, slogans you hear, whether it's um, really expanding privacy, whether it's increasing transparency, um, there's going to be regulation coming and and making sure that it's the right kind of regulation, I think, will be really important.
0: So, for people listening and really, you know, hearing what you're saying and it's resonated with them and they're thinking, how can I set something up at my organization? How can I set up a responsible innovation program, what advice would you give them?
1: Yeah, I love this question. Um, And I hope that anyone listening who is thinking about it does set up a responsible innovation program. And uh, a couple of thoughts in in response to your question. First, start early and start often. It's, um, It's never too early in the development life cycle to consider responsibility challenges. So as soon as you know that there's the idea of a product, your next question should be, okay, how can this product be um, misused or what harms could it create that are unintended and can we start to, um, bake that into our thinking early so that those things don't actually happen. 2nd, um, responsible innovation should be something that teams are eager to engage with. Right? So, while in an ideal world, it would be a required stage in the product development lifecycle. It also shouldn't be kind of a compliance speed bump. It shouldn't be something that engineer engineering teams are loath to engage with. It should be something that teams are eager to, um, to consider that they recognize that it's essential to getting their product right to ensuring that there's a market desire for the product because it's a, a product that is beneficial to society. And so figuring out how to balance the top down and the bottom up approach to this, I think is really important. Third, the program should reflect uh, a diversity of users, right? So having a diverse team of experts to think through responsibility challenges will help in surfacing unique um, out of the box risks um, and also developing innovative responses to those risks. So this includes a diversity from a obviously a gender and racial uh, perspective, but also in terms of expertise, right? Bringing in anthropologists and neuroscientists and human rights experts who can really bring in a range of disciplines to think through these challenges. And then finally, I've mentioned this a few times, um, but I I can't overstate it Uh, incentives need to be aligned. So you can have the greatest principles in the world and you can have all the tools and the workshops available. But if engineers aren't incentivized to consider these issues, they may not be considered. And so how can companies create the right incentive structures that really promote responsible thinking responsible design responsible deployment of technology.
0: As you were talking, you you know, you talked about implementing this process early. And often, I wonder if people at organizations where their product, where they fear that their product has already caused harm in some way. And they feel like this is an uphill battle and they're, they feel like maybe any attempt that they make at this point is futile. What your advice to them would be?
1: I would say it's never uh, it's never futile. I think that the more we can um, champion and highlight the work of people who are really fighting the good fight inside of companies, the better. Um, I have yet to to engage with a company where there's been not a single person who cares about these issues. There's always someone inside of the company. So figure out. Who are your allies? Who are others maybe in different business units or different departments or even different offices um, who care about this? Can you create a network of folks to elevate this issue inside of companies, inside of the company that you're working with? So find your allies, um, look for external guidance, build the business case. Um, I think it's nowadays pretty easy to build the business case if you look at the headlines, if you look at the regulatory pressures um, to really think about this more proactively, and um, and know that you know baby steps can have really big impacts. And what's interesting about the technology sector in general is that small changes can have um vast vast fast impacts and so don't underestimate your ability to slowly incrementally move your company towards a direction that is much more um co- uh inclusive of responsibility issues and um and in turn support the the development of products that are that are beneficial to
0: society. That's wonderful advice. Thank you Chloe. If people want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, I would say the best place is go to our website, which is www.articleoneadvisors.com, um, or
0: you can email me at Chloe at com. Thank you again. This has been so interesting. I've learned a ton and I hope others have also found it inspiring. And thank you again, Chloe, for sharing your your really valuable expertise and insights. Thank you so much, Heidi,
1: and thank you so much for hosting these conversations. I think um, we need more of them. So uh, looking
0: forward to, um, to hearing more of the discussions you're having with folks in this sector.